It is Wednesday, my dudes, and that means it is time for another episode of Codex Radio. I'm your host, Endless Odyssey, and it is Wednesday, the 8th of August, 2018, and that means this is episode 31 and part 19 of our reading of Planescape Torment. Have we got an episode for you today, folks? This might be one of my favorites that we've done so far. Um, We're going to get to one of my most favorite sections in the entire uh, narrative. The sixth circle of the unbroken circle of Xerthamon is upon us, and boy howdy is it a doozy. I gave myself ASMR while reading this section, so uh, I hope you enjoy it, because I sure did. Uh, But we'll get to that soon enough. Uh, Previously on Planescape Torment... Uh, The team split up, going its separate ways in pursuit of finding any leads regarding Mort's uh, location, Uh, and we didn't really get too far in that, to be honest. The Nameless One struck a deal with a mage, Sebastian, to uh, fight a black Abishai that the mage owes a debt to uh, in exchange for the mage uh, curing the Nameless One's physical wounds and hopefully making him uh, slightly less horrible looking. Uh, And then Anna had encountered an old childhood friend of hers uh, being sold into slavery at the marketplace, while Dakon stepped into a pawn shop and found himself in the middle of a domestic spat between the proprietors. Still no sign of Mort yet, but hopefully we'll pick up his trail pretty soon here. Uh, I think that about does it. I now give you part 19 of Planescape Torment. My neck hurt. Standing at the base of the siege tower, I arched back to take in a good view of the squatting monstrosity. Its walls were scarred and pitted with the wounds of countless wars, and looking at my own scars now, I must say I felt a bit of empathy, and on each of the four walls, rusted blades protruded. Each knife was tarnished, its edges snaggle-toothed like the fangs of a morbid beast. The shadows of those blades seemed to cut into the ground where they were cast, and even I was a little careful stepping between them. Circling around it, I found my target. Next to the chain of a drawbridge hunched a reptilian creature with a snake-like body, four-clawed feet, leathery wings, and a draconian head. The scales covering its body were a vile shade of green. The Abishai stands upright on its hind legs, balancing with its prehensile tail. As I approached, its eyes narrowed to slits, and it begins to hiss. Greetings, I offered. The air around the creature began to radiate heat, and its scales took on a pale sheen. He gave me a hungry look and appeared ready to strike. Suddenly, it released a fury of hisses and relaxed its stance a bit. Sss, go! Grasag no talk! Told wait! Sss! It glared at me as its tail lashed back and forth. What kind of creature are you? Every muscle on the creature seemed to tense as it released a storm of snarls. It started to reach for my scarred flesh, then stopped. Hate dripped from its eyes when it spoke. Grasag no talk! Sss! You lucky human! You go while still lucky! You stay! Grasag shred! Uh, 
Sebastian sent me. The creature relaxed quite a bit, and the air grew cooler. It held out a clawed hand to me. S give Grosuk information! He looked at me expectantly. Ah, crap. I needed to stall. Uh, what information? It was hard to read facial expressions on a reptile, but I was certain that Grosik was rather annoyed with me. His tail began to lash furiously, and the air grew warm again. No question! Give Grosik information, or die! Grosik then take information from body! I need to know which piece of information is for you. I run errands intended for several people, you understand. He glared at me for a moment while he thought. Finally, he gestured at the nearby tower. Siege tower! Sss! How get inside? Sebastian say he divine way! Grossack took a step toward me and held out his hand. Now give! Maybe I could just back away. Oh, that information. Uh, I'm sorry. Sebastian wanted to deliver that one in person. He'll be along soon. The air around Grossack began to radiate heat, and his scales took on a pale sheen. He gave me a hungry look and appeared ready to strike. Grossack opened his mouth to reveal several rows of razor-sharp teeth. No! Grossack think you lie! Give information now! Grossack kill quick, not slow! Not give! Grossack take time! Remove you insides! Let you watch! I was probably going to need a lot of burn ointment after this encounter. Wryly, I wondered if Sebastian's offer of healing would at least counteract the wounds I would be receiving. Fine. Sebastian sent me to kill you anyway. I grunted and brought a finger to my lips as I began an incantation. Chapter 47 I could feel my face shattering as I slammed against the wall. Broken shards of bone scraped against one another, setting bolts of pain lancing through my head. I felt a deep gush inside, and something salty trickled into my mouth. My lips had been shorn off in the fight, and my grunts of pain wheezed through chipped teeth. Despite the horrific injuries, the battle wasn't as bad as I'd expected. I'd seared Grossick with bolts of Elysium's fire and scuttled under his claws when he slashed. Though my dagger's enchantment was sufficient to pierce his hide, melee would have been a poor, stupid, horrible strategy. Grossick's serpentine tail twined around my ankle, and he unceremoniously dragged me towards him as I stabbed uselessly at the flicking appendage. Like I said, stupid. One claw clutched me around the throat, and Grossick dragged me up to look me in the eye. His breath reeked of rotting flesh. Grossick kill manling slow, eat flesh, he snarled. Strew out remains across gray waste. I gurgled. What manling say? Grossick snarled. His claws, already stained black by the blood of his prey, dug into my throat. Urgent Essel! I pressed my fingers against his jaw. The resulting blast knocked us away from each other, though his talons drew ragged wounds along my neck as we flew apart. The burst of sulfurous blood clouded my vision, and when I leaped to my feet and wiped my eyes, there was Grossick, howling as the scraps of what remained of his jawbone clicked uselessly. Disoriented, he clambered after me, but I was quicker. I rounded about him, left aside when he swiped. If he were wiser and calmer, he might have surrendered and promised to leave Sebastian alone. No, a fiend is a vengeful creature, else he wouldn't have threatened the mage in the first place. He got a few good scrapes in, despite my dodging, and when he fell I could feel my life hanging by a thread. All this had better be worth it.
Sebastian smiled at my approach, though his lips immediately curdled at the sight of my ruined face. Good day, Cutter. I presume you have completed your quest. Yes, and I'm comfortable as do I. One moment, please, Cutter. Sebastian reached into his robe and removed a small crystal ball. He gazed into it for a moment before returning his attention to me. I cannot thank you enough, Cutter. I shall live up to my part of the bargain. Are you ready? I nodded. Yes. Plucking a vial from his belt, Sebastian poured a viscous purple liquid into his palm. Murmuring a complex chant, he drew an arcane sigil in the puddle. Where his finger traced the liquid, the pool began to glow, bubbling bright and violet. With a burst, the magic was released, and traces of the stuff flooded into my flesh. My skin bubbled, and a hot burning itch flowed through my body as I felt wounds knit shut and my scars recede. I gasped, licking my newly regrown lips. It is done, Cutter. Once again, I thank you. Sebastian bowed deeply to me. I looked at my body in wonder. The gray pallor remained, but many of the puckers of twisted flesh had receded if they hadn't disappeared entirely. Thank you, and farewell, Sebastian. The ladle clacked against the walls of the cauldron as it stirred the plague-yellow broth. It was thick and opaque, a diseased green with nary a single bubble marring its surface. See how easily the flesh falls from the bone? The old man rasped. His fingernails were long and white and delicately gripped the handle of the ladle. Pulling it up, he scooped out a freshly cleaned skull. The last few traces of once petrified meat slewed off, dribbling back into the vile brew like melting butter. Mort whimpered and shivered in his cage. Most of my prized pieces do not need eyes to see, nor a tongue to speak with. Can I say the same of you? But please, just let me go. Mort braced himself for the pain, like that bolt of blinding agony that left him spinning on the ground and screaming until the world went black. It was the first and last time he mouthed off here. Yet the old man barely raised his head as he touched the skull with the tip of one talon. Awaken, skull, for now you bear my mark, now and forevermore. Speak, else I will call upon the whispering chorus and the rattling legion to whip your shade until the plains grind to dust. The skull wheezed as if taking its first breath. Age-yellowed teeth clacked. Its voice was honey-sweet, effeminate and soft as down. It was frightened. Who? Oh, light of a tune! This is not the river of golden reeds, she moaned. Why am I here? I have laid sacrifices thrice a year, sent gifts of incense to the alabaster temple. My body was embalmed with resin, myrrh, and packed with natron in the manner of the old ways. My lover placed a coin upon my tongue, as was the custom of his lands. Why do I not rest with him in the afterlife? Silence now until I bid you speak, the elderly sage snapped. He plucked a mummified head from the shelf by the ragged remains of its linen wrappings. Its shrunken eyes had been pressed flat into their sockets by two coins clinging as if glued to dry flesh. Its lips were curled into a grimace. Gold glinted past one chipped tooth. The sage dropped the grim parcel into the brew with a splash. Your lover will join you soon enough. 
The female skull was muted by Lothar's command, but Mort's shrieks echoing against the walls were enough for both of them. I whistled a merry tune as I waited for Anna and Dakon, happy to be whole again, lips and all. Sebastian's healing was astounding. My skin lost many of the subtle itches and tugs that I had never known existed, and the ancient aches and battle-scarred bones were gone. I had lived with them for as long as I could remember, though granted my memory only stretched back a few weeks, and to have them gone, well, the best I could describe it was that it was refreshing since I have nothing else to compare it to. Fine day, isn't it? I said cheerfully to a passerby. Pike it, clueless! Then a slim, bony finger tapped me on the shoulder. I turned to face a man with rough, leathery skin, with the same pale yellow cast as Dakon and other Githzerai I had seen. Yet his features were more gaunt, skeletal, as if his skull had been drawn downwards. His face was angular, his nose small and highly placed, and his ears tapered to points and slashed as if by a ritual knife. A tracery of tattoos and scars covered his body. While Dakon's manner of dress was more austere, this one was dressed in strange gaudy leathers that look more ornamental than combat-ready. His eyes were like two small black stones, and they pierced me with their unwavering gaze. "'You are the human seeking memories,' he said flatly. "'I can help you.' "'Who and what are you, stranger?' He seemed Githzerai, but lord he was ugly. "'I am Yi Min.' I am a Githyanki angler. My people are the undisputed masters of the astral plane, where the gods go to die, and the memories of the dead float like leaves in a pool. My duty is in retrieving the memory cores of the dead, and gleaning them for information. I can locate your memories. You have only to pay the price. What price would that be? It is a matter of a mere few coins. The price I ask is negotiable. I ask for two hundred. You will determine the value of the memories I find, and pay accordingly. After splurging on spells and items, my coin pouch might have been a touch too light for his request, but the Githyanki seemed quite generous with his terms. Sounds good. What do I have to do? His beady eyes glanced side to side a moment. If I am to bait my hook for your memories... I will need some of the memories you currently possess. I also require a place of concentration and quiet. If you will follow me, we will journey to one such place, and I will make you whole again. We go alone, with no companions. I nodded cheerfully. I suppose they can wait for me to return. Lead the way. The streets were cobbled in what once might have been luxurious blue stone, Patches of polished azure still glinted, though they lay like scattered puddles on the bottom of a riverbed. The bare red clay had been revealed by years of acidic rain and heavy footsteps. While this ward may have been luxurious once, it too lay in despair and ruin. So, what can you tell me about the Githyanki? I've never heard of them before. Are you brethren to the Githzerai? Ye Min paused a moment, glancing back to me out of one corner of his eye. The air was pregnant with an awkward tension, and my mouth dried a little. In a manner of speaking. His lip curled into a half-grimace. I sighed in relief. So, where are we headed? If there's a bar nearby, perhaps I could buy you a drink. Yi Min shook his head. No, such business is best done away from prying eyes and ears. After, 
perhaps, or when I return with our catch. I remained silent the rest of the way. We passed a couple of buildings, down one block, and turned into a dim corner of the ward. Yi Min turned to face me as we stood near a collection of ancient barrels, shaded by the tight confines. To my right, another gaunt, yellow-faced Githzerai stepped from the shadows, clad in garish orange and clinking with chains and jewels. To my left, another stood. In his hands, he held an unsheathed dagger, its blade gnarled and twisted. No doubt the wounds that weapon caused would be grievous indeed. Slowly, more of Yi Min's companions filtered in, long-fanged and garishly clad. They held themselves with a warrior's confidence, eyes narrowed to slits, and slit-like noses curled as if something malodorous stood beneath them. As for Yi Min, the Gith Yankee's mood had turned into something much more ugly than its previous arrogance. Now, human, drop your painted shield and tell us what you have said and done for the Githzerai dogs within Sigil's walls. I looked at the small crowd surrounding me. These weren't the average High Valley rats that I had disposed of so easily. Their stances were heavy with the weight of decades, razor-honed with practice. Silently, I cursed myself for naivete. Weren't... weren't we going to go look for my memories? The only way you shall travel to the astral plane is in chains, human. One behind me hissed in disgust. You have one more chance to tell us what you have said and done for the Githzerai within Sigil's walls. I... we merely relieved a Githzerai woman's pain. Emin's voice was cold and iron-hard. You lie like a Githzerai dog, human. You are their kisling and their leech. We will do you a favor by killing you. He drew his weapon. Well, I could have used a little rest. Emin's blade slashed across my throat and I fell to the ground bleeding. My tongue writhed as I tried to gag, each pulse flooding the cobblestones with another spurt of blood. I lay there, mouth working like that of a dying fish, and as my twitching slowed, the gang stood over me and began to speak again. Did he truly know nothing, Almidil? His words were those of an enemy of the people. Even were that not true, we have cauterized his ignorance with death's iron. My eyes rolled upwards to gaze at a Githyanki female who nodded in agreement. Let us leave him here for the collectors to scavenge. We have gathered enough information on the Githzerai dogs for this trip. They shall lose another fortress before the seven day is out. Yemin spoke again, his tone final. The walls of Vistragor shall fall. If you believe our knowledge is sufficient, then we shall go. Gather our warriors, and let us join our war party in limbo. That was the last I heard, before the darkness took me in once again. Chapter 48 Get up, you bag of bones and ugly! The words flitted on the edge of my consciousness, like a moth batting against the dimly lit glass of a lantern. Wake up, I said! There was a sharp ache in my side that hadn't been there before, and when the firm toe of a boot cracked against my ribs again, the ache flared anew. I'm awake! I groaned, pushing myself off a congealed puddle of my own blood. I felt my throat for the wound that the Githyanki had made. All that was left was an itching scar and even that seemed to be healing over quite nicely. Even with Anna's sunny voice ringing in my ears, this was possibly the best out of all the times I'd resurrected. Ach, I'll leave you alone for two hours and you just get yourself killed again! Luckily I have a knack for squeezing in places most of Farad's other sods ignore, or I'd never have found you stashed here. I took in my surroundings. 
By the look of it, I had been flung behind the barrels in this musty old alley and left to rot in the forgotten shade. Good thing, too. I didn't relish another trip to the mortuary or having to explain myself to a collector if I awoke in transit. Anna stood above me, panting as if she'd run around half the ward looking for me. Are you all right, Anna? She paused a moment, crouching down but taking care not to let her tail drag in my blood. It flicked a little, betraying the stern countenance she slid on. Anna was nervous. I... I need your help. I'd hate to keep Dakon waiting, I mused as we strode down the street. Ah, the pasty-faced gith can take care of himself. I nodded. That was true enough. Anna, I'm curious. I know you've seen worse in Sigil than the slave trade. What makes this so important? I already told you what you need to know, she muttered. Just go with it. Is it something personal? Anna bristled at that and added an edge to her walk, like a cat stalking its prey. Ugh, I wish that old moldskin gith were here to bind you in his chatter. Dakon doesn't talk much. No, came the hoary voice from behind us. But I hear your words. I was surprised that Anna didn't draw her blades. Turning around, I froze. A well-formed bruise around Dakon's eye had just begun turning green at the edges, and a small cut on his cheek was beginning to dry and scab over. He stood stiffly, however, arms crossed in meditative calm. You got in a fight? Dakon set his coal-black gaze upon me, rigid and keen as steel. Uh, a dispute. It would be wise to know that words may set motion to blades, but it is the blades themselves that do the harm. Are those pottery shards caught in your armor? We will speak no more of it. I shrugged and flicked a clot charm to him. In any case, we're uh, off to free a slave. There was no mistaking the throng on the podium for anything but slaves. They were glassy-eyed, outcasts of a city that heaved a fatigued sigh at the sight of poverty and lazily brushed them into a corner. As they swayed on aching legs and bent with slumped shoulders, a boisterous auctioneer stood out in front of them. He was very animated and did a lot of shouting, yelling, and stomping, carrying a flair for the melodrama like a metal-lined sash and curled his cheeks into many strange facial expressions. Greetings. He glanced at me and motioned to the crowd that he was taking a break. Well, a thousand greetings do I bestow upon you, sir. He winced at the sight of my scars. You know, I take one look at you with my discerning eye, and I see a man in the market for some healing charms. Granted, we were a bit low on them, but other matters needed tending. Who are you? Duran's the name, friend. Can it be you have not heard of me? I am wounded, verily I am. He smiled wider at the feigned wound. No one finer or more well-known for bringing people who want people a little closer together. He pointed at the rear of the auction block, where the group shuffled in their chains. Do you be wanting someone, friend? Hmm. I heard you sold slaves. He shook his head. No, sir. These are indentured servants, not slaves. For the most part, they're guilty of minor crimes. The proceeds from their sale go towards paying their debt to the city. After their term of servitude, they will be free citizens once again. You bandy words and toy with semantics, Dakon murmured coldly. His voice was like an ice-cold river trickling over rough stone. Such a thing is the definition of slavery. Duran gave him a bright smile. I don't concern myself with such thoughts. 
My task is to sell their contracts as given by the courts of sigil. He lowered his voice as he leaned in closer to me. And collect a percentage for my efforts, you understand. He straightened. You said they were guilty of crimes. What crimes did they commit? He shrugged his shoulders in an exaggerated way. I don't know for certain, but I would guess theft, assault, or not being able to pay their debts. Those are the most common transgressions. I would like to look over your slaves, then. Duran's lips pressed tight and bowed with a flourish. Well, look if you wish, but the auction will take place quite soon. This way, Anna said, leading me by the arm. The woman we spoke to wore shoddy clothes, but her demeanor was one of elegance, unlike that of the people who surrounded her. Her skin was clean and smooth, lacking the yellow tint of the inhabitants of the ward. Her face was awash in relief when we approached, and she smiled at Anna. I think the powers you've returned, Anna. She sighed and looked to me. My name is Trist, and I'm in need of the services of a mercenary. She paused and examined me more carefully. If appearances are any indication, you would seem to be such an individual. I nodded. The title was somewhat militant, but it would suffice. What exactly is it that you want of me? The heart of the matter is that I am to be sold into slavery for a crime I did not commit. I am in need of a champion, someone who will help me prove my innocence and free me from this fate. She paused and looked at me expectantly. Tell me exactly what's going on. Trist sighed as she began her tale. My husband died recently and left me his business. I'm not business-oriented, so I decided to sell it. Not long afterward, I was contacted by a lender saying a loan on the business had not been paid. I examined all the documents my husband kept and found that there had indeed been a loan taken, but it had just been recently paid in full. I explained this to the lender, and after a few days he asked for a copy of the document. It was nowhere to be found. She looked concerned and paused to think. Well, when I could not prove that the loan was paid, the lender took me before the court. My monies were taken and applied to the balance owed. Since it did not pay off the loan, I am to be sold on the block to try and recover the remaining amount due. She gave me a forlorn look. I don't understand. Why sell you into slavery? Dakon scowled at the mention of the word, and Anna's lips pursed. She shrugged. It serves many purposes. First, it keeps the prisons relatively clear of all but the vilest criminals. Second, the sale of the convicted is used to pay for any damages, costs, or fees involved in the case. Finally, the convicted still serves a sentence from which they are eventually released, supposedly as better citizens. I was in over my head. She was talking to someone who woke up in a mortuary and slept in the gutters for the good part of two weeks. I was no lawyer, and if she expected me to navigate through red tape and paperwork... This is all fascinating, but I don't see how I can help you. I... I need someone to find the missing document, the one that proves the loan was paid. Or if you could purchase my contract, I could pay you back. She gave me a pleading look. I can't spend the next five years of my life in this ward, Cutter. It'll kill me. Surely you've noticed the illness shared by all who live here. Yes, the yellow skin and coughing. Trist nodded her head. Yes, Cutter. Please, can you find it in your heart to help me? She glanced at Anna, then looked at me nervously. Please. I placed one hand on her arm to soothe her. Yes, I'll help you. I have some questions, though. Could you have misplaced the loan document? She shakes her head. No, Cutter, I am a very meticulous person. I kept the document in a lockbox in my husband's study. It's never left that room. Do you think the loan document could have been stolen? 
She shrugged. I don't know. Why would anyone steal that, yet leave other valuables be? It makes little sense to me. Well, my voice took on a suspicious edge. Maybe the lender stole the document so that you'd pay for the loan twice. She looked at me in shock. That... that is a terrible thought. She hesitated and then began to tap her chin with a finger as she thought. But also a most ingenious one, Cutter. This Byron Pickett does strike me as a knight of the post. A what? Anna sighed. A thief or a cheat, you know, knights of the post, who practiced the cross-trade. One of these days, someone should compile a book of this Sigillian slang. So, the lender is this Byron Pickett? I, I know his name well, Cutter. After all I've been through, I will not likely forget it. Her eyes took on a faraway look, and then she shuddered for a moment. And his associate may be someone named Lenny. Who is this Lenny? She thought for a moment. There was a small, feral-looking man who came to court a few times. He would sit behind Pickett and whisper to him occasionally. I remember him because he always seemed to be uncomfortable in his clothes. He would pick at them as if they were new, as if he were not used to wearing them. She paused again. On one such occasion, Pickett told him to sit still and stop fidgeting. He called him Lenny. Where can I find Lenny? Ach, I can find the sod, Anna said. You learn to notice the signs of a thief passing with enough experience. I'll trust that, then. I turned to Trist. Where can I find Byron? She thought for a moment. I think he can be found in or around the open-air market. Forgive me, but I'm not certain. The name of Byron Pickett was well known in the market. An old woman bent over a tray of withered fig, spat in disgust as if the name was rancid on her tongue. A plump merchant selling brass cookware turned pale and shooed us away. But eventually, we found him. We approached a well-dressed middle-aged man browsing the wares, only half-interested. When he looked up, his eyes seemed to be scanning the crowd with a practiced eye, and his robes were neat and well-trimmed. Despite his clean-cut appearance, he was slightly plump around the middle, and his demeanor was oily, somehow, as if his personality exuded grease. I needed to wash my hands. He gave me a slick smile and a barely perceptible nod. I am Byron Pickett, moneylender. How may I help you? Moneylender? He nodded again. Yes, I cater to the needs of merchants. Want to start a business? Keep one afloat that's down on its luck? Or perhaps expand a business? In either case, you come to me for the funds. He looked me up and down. I doubt that you are a merchant, sir, so what can I do for you? I'm a merchant, I lied. He smiled and looked away for a moment. A merchant of death, maybe, but not the kind I do business with. He frowned. If you insist on monopolizing my time, please come to the point of this visit. Out of the corner of my eye, I could see Anna sneaking behind the money lender. I just needed to keep him talking. Can you tell me about your business? He frowned and shook his head. No, I see no reason to. He looked me up and down. You are obviously not someone I conduct business with. I think you should leave. Wait, I have some questions. He sighed just as Anna began rifling through his pockets. Very well, make it quick. I want to talk to you about Trist. Ah, Trist. He frowned and looked away. After a moment, he looked at me and raised his eyebrows. What about her? I'm trying to find a missing document for her. He sighed and shook his head. There is no missing document. That was a ruse instigated by Triss to cast doubt on her debt. 
This matter has been thoroughly investigated by the Mercy Killers, and they found no evidence of any such document. The Mercy Killers? Anna withdrew her alabaster hands, finding nothing. She did, however, snip his purse strings for good measure. Yes, a faction of fanatics dedicated to uncovering the truth in criminal cases and handing out justice. They are often used as investigators by the Court of Sigil. They are quite thorough, and they found nothing. He glared at me. They could have missed something. That is a possibility, but not very likely. You're obviously not familiar with the Mercy Killers or their methods for you to make such a statement. If they could not find the document, then it does not exist. He sniffed. A muscle in my cheek twitched. Someone could have stolen the document and then destroyed it. That way, the loan would be paid twice. For a moment, he looked as if he was about to be furious with me. His eyes widened, his lips twitched, and then a gloating smile crossed his face. What a terrible thought. Pity there's no proof of any such activity. He continued to smile at me. Yes, a pity. So, tell me, why have Triss sold into slavery? Couldn't she pay you your money in the form of a loan? Even though Anna stepped back, I could see the cold fury burning at her cheeks. His backside must have been a tempting target. Yes, she could, and I did make that offer to her. He looked at me sternly. However, she turned me down. I don't allow second chances. No one turns me down without suffering the consequences. No one. He waved me off. I've had enough of you to last a lifetime. I will answer no more of your questions. Now pike it, sod. He turned away. Did you find anything? I asked as Anna stepped back to my side. Nothing. The snake only had a wee touch of coin on him. He must keep his papers elsewhere. She glanced around. Somewhere safe. Lenny, then. We'll get our answers from him. What do you know of Vistragor, Dakon? My friend and mentor glared down to me as I squatted at the street corner, resting my legs. His blade flickered when I uttered the name, bright like a bolt of recognition. How? How did you come to know that name? My throat itched at the memory of a jagged silver-edged sword tearing through cartilage and meat spilling a crimson tide that flowed across the cobblestones. I flicked my fingers and conjured a few sparks of flame. A cantrip or two would ease my mind. A githyanki mentioned it to his comrades as he stood over my body. They thought I was dead. The blade flickered again, black and serrated. For a moment, Dakon pondered in silence, and scarlet swirls bled along the karak, as if it were eager to dip into the belly of a foe. Dakon's face was calm as stone. Silently, he took the circle of Xerthamon in hand, running shriveled yellow fingers around its edges. The plates clicked slowly as he reworked the pattern. I waved away the flicker of flame dancing at my fingertips. Five times already I'd seen him unlock the circle of Xerthamon, and five times I was eager to learn the truth. But the air carried a black omen now, and my throat was dry when he handed the circle to me. Upon the blasted plains, Xerthamon told Gith... There cannot be two skies. In the wake of his words came war. Upon the blasted plains, the people had achieved victory over their illithid masters. They knew freedom. Yet before the green fires had died from the battlefield, Gith spoke of continuing the war. Many, still filled with bloodlust in their hearts, agreed with her. She spoke of not merely defeating the illithids, but destroying all Illithids across the plains. 
After the Illithids had been exterminated, they would bring war to all other races they encountered. In Gith's heart, fire raged. She lived in war, and in war she knew herself. All that her eyes saw, she wanted to conquer. Zerthamon spoke the beginnings of that which was against Gith's will. He spoke that the people already knew freedom. Now they should know themselves again, and mend the damage that had been done to the people. Behind his words were many other hearts of the people who were weary of the war against the Illithid. Know that Gith's heart was not Zerthamon's heart on this matter. She said that the war would continue. The Illithid would be destroyed. Their flesh would be no more. Then the people would claim the false worlds as their own. Gith told Zerthamon that they would be under the same sky in this matter. The words were like barred steel. From Zerthamon came the pronouncement of two skies. In the wake of his words came war. I folded the plates shut as Dakon waited for my answer. I know that Zerthamon's devotion to the people was such that he was willing to protect them from themselves. He knew the Illithids had come to not know themselves in their obsession with control and domination, so he chose to stop Gith before she carried the people to their deaths. There must be balance in all things, or else the self will not hold. You have seen the words and know them. Dakon's voice slowed, and his hands gripped the edges of the unbroken circle. He twisted it clockwise, and there was a click as two plates slid forth. Dakon stared at the two plates in his hands. He made no move to hand them to me. Dakon, is that second plate for you? Dakon remained silent. His blade had ceased shimmering, the film freezing upon its surface. He was staring at the second plate, paralyzed. Do you know the sixth circle? Dakon looked up, but his coal-black eyes didn't meet my gaze. No, there is nothing more I may teach you. You know the way, as the people know it, and it shall give you the direction by which you may know yourself. That's not what I asked. Do you know the sixth circle or not? Dakon was silent for a moment, then spoke, his voice slow and careful. It has come to pass that I do not know the sixth circle of Zerthamon. Once I knew it, but I know now that I only saw the words. Dakon's eyes stared through me. They ached with ancient memory of nostalgia unfulfilled. That is all. It is my path that I no longer know the way of Zerthamon. I thought carefully back to the first circle, the second. All the pieces began to come together, snapping one by one like links in a chain. Dakon, there is one other thing I would know. Why is Villaquar's eye in the circle of Zerthamon? It seems strange. It tells of how the people benefited from a treachery from their own. It seems... Dakon's eyes flashed. I have told you it is a part of the telling of how the people came to know freedom. Do you not listen? His voice flattened as if he was reciting a passage from memory. It tells the people that even in the greatest treachery, a greater knowing may be achieved. It doesn't sound to me like you believe that. I think there's another reason Villaquar's eye is in the circle of Zerthamon. It's set there because of the sixth circle and the pronouncement of two skies. It's there to justify Zerthamon's treachery to the people upon the blasted plains. Dakon was silent, and his blade bled into dead black, teeth rippling along the edge. 
He divided the people upon the blasted plains, Dakon. He divided your race when they were on the path of victory. I would like to believe that it was because he wished to save the people from themselves, but I don't think you believe that. Dakon was silent for a moment. Then he spoke slowly. I... I do not know the Sixth Circle as it is known to others. I fear the Third Circle, the Fourth Circle, and the Sixth Circle are more closely linked than many know. It is in that knowing that I have lost myself. In the Third Circle, Xerthamon submerged his will to deceive the Illithids. Then in the Fourth Circle, it speaks to the benefits of treachery. Then in the Sixth Circle, Xerthamon divides his people before they exterminate the Illithids. Do you think Xerthamon's words may not have been his own? Know my words, and know the wound that lies upon my heart. I fear that when Xerthamon was upon the Pillar of Silence, he did not submerge his will. I fear his will was taken from him by the Illithids, and when he spoke upon the Blasted Plains, it was their words he spoke. I fear that what he did was not for the people's sake, but for our former masters. It's possible, but no, it doesn't necessarily mean that he... Dakon's sudden fury was the rumble and crack of a glacier splitting in two, his voice like a knife. Then know this, and speak no more. Know that I shall never know the truth. There is no resolution in this matter, for I shall never know Xerthamon's heart upon the blasted plains. His coal-black eyes glared at the stone circle in hand. And so I do not know myself, because of the unbroken circle of Xerthamon. Dakon. I started, but the slim figure of a flame-haired rogue slid into view from around the corner. Ah, I hate to split whatever lover's spat there is between you two, but I found him. I stood as Dakon's face smoothed to stillness, silent waters covering the churning storm beneath. He tucked the circle away. All right, let's see what we can beat out of this Lenny. Interlude. What's gotten the gith knickers in a knot? Mykon bellows drunkenly. The Dakon sounds like a mighty fine warrior, he does. Who needs to concern himself in a pile of moldy words on a platter? Apetrius's sharp nose wrinkles in disdain. Good Harmonium officer, I grant you the benefit of a doubt that you wouldn't say such things when sober, since that is the stupidest thing I've ever heard and that is speaking as a member of the Fraternity of Order, as well as the 25th of 212 Keepers of the Keys of the Great Library Mechanus, and High Scribe to the Libris Occultus on the Prime World of Tedracon. For I will say that I have sifted through my share of nonsense by merely rifling through the first three alcoves of the Great Library. Out of the corner of your eye you've been noticing the yellow-skinned gith slipping in. They came in small groups, huddled together and dressed in austere orange-gray robes. Their faces are stern, their weapons simple. One carries a halberd whose blade shifted and flowed, blue as the sea one moment and silver green the next. Without a doubt she is a Zerth, perhaps one returning from a Rachma band from the way she stands so proudly. Naturally, the Githsarai, perhaps ten to fifteen in all, crowd against the wall on one end of the tavern, while the Githyanki do the same on the other. The tarnished side of the coin has always sent a chill down your spine. You had served with Githsarai before, fine, noble warriors, but the Githyanki. Where the Githsarai listen with meditative calm, the Githyanki stand tense, chuckling at some points, snarling and spitting at others. Their clothing is elaborate to the point of gaudiness. 
There are tattoos, piercings, and slitted ears mark high resistance, or perhaps just love of, pain. Needle-tipped teeth jut through their skeletal maws, and their eyes are beady and black as a fiend's heart. You sip your drink. It's a wonder the two groups haven't burst into fighting by now. Giths are I dogs, one of the Githyanki spits. They never should have been cut from the leashes of their illithid masters. Githyanki rats, the Zerth proclaims calmly. Unfit to feed even the fungal fields. Though some in the crowd that had been seated between the two rival groups shift uneasily, most merely sit back and wait for Apetrius to continue. Perhaps they are clueless, or powerful adventurers, or they have full trust in Shara Sixblades to break up any brawl between the two rival groups. If a fight did break out, Githzerai and Githyanki alike would have to carve a path through a hundred densely packed patrons to get at each other. Now, to append your statement, good Harmonium officer. Apetrius nudges his spectacles back on the bridge of his nose. It should be quite clear to any planer that thought shapes the planes. To begin with, material substance is produced by the inner planes. The four basic elements, along with the forces of creation and destruction, these filter through the ethereal, condensing to become the prime worlds, like an infinite multitude of dewdrops at the dawn of the multiverse. The worlds give rise to sentient life, and the prime, acting at this point as the junction between material and ideal substance, give rise to thought and idea. Beliefs bud and branch through the latticework of the astral into the outer planes. To any planer with a wit of thought, it therefore becomes clear that thought is a potent force, especially in the Great Ring. I recall a colleague of mine, Factor Guthrin Yevendrensky. Bright fellow, I must say. He once wrote a thesis regarding the top-down control of sentient thought, and how it might trickle down the nascent cascade of... A half-full bottle of wine shatters on the back wall of the stage. But regarding the Githzerai in particular... Factor Apetrius flicks a sliver of broken glass from his shoulder. Zorskavit perches on the stage and gestures, adding pantomime in motion to the governor's words. Clarity of thought is their lifeblood. Githzerai blades are honed by focus. History paves their streets, and traditions are the brick and mortar of their temples. I do not mean to be poetic, quite the contrary. Indeed, the Nameless One would soon discover this for himself. And that'll do it for this week's episode of Codex Radio. Uh, thanks so much for listening, everyone. If you have any feedback for the show, uh, we'd love to hear it. You can send it to me via Twitter. I'm at Endless underscore Odyssey. Or you can tweet at the show's account, which is at Codex underscore radio. If you got any emails, you can send them to CodexPodcast at MyriadTrues.com. Uh, and if you're feeling generous, please consider leaving us a rating wherever you get your podcasts so that new listeners might find the show. That's all I have for you this week, folks. I'll see you next Wednesday.